From the Battle of Gettysburg, there are as many stories as participants. For this episode, selections from the first day. Stories about the first shot, the arrival and instantaneous death of a Union Corps commander, the desperate struggle for a flag, an unlikely 69-year-old volunteer, and two infantry regiments savagely engaged, the men of the 26th North Carolina and the 24th Michigan, all actors in a great historical drama and played out just as we are as human beings. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. It was a Friday, May 15, 1863, and in Richmond, Virginia, Confederate President Jefferson Davis convened a strategic meeting. Weighing heavily on his mind, military stalemate in Virginia, Braxton Bragg's inactive Confederate army in southeastern Tennessee, and Vicksburg, the last great Confederate citadel on the Mississippi River threatened by a Union force under a determined, relentless Major General U.S. Grant. There were those at the meeting who believed that with stalemate in Virginia, troops from the Army of Northern Virginia might be sent west to relieve pressure on the force defending Vicksburg. However, Robert E. Lee offered an alternative. He believed he could negate reversals in Mississippi with success in Pennsylvania. Indeed, the time for applying pressure was ripe for Union two-year and 90-day enlistments were ending that spring. A second invasion might re-energize northern groups who clamored for peace, and Europe would have to sit up and take notice. And then there was the reality of supply. Lee could not feed his army from the ravaged land along the Rappahannock. His army had to be on the move, and the Keystone State was unspoiled. These conditions helped to ease doubts held by his second-in-command, Lieutenant General James Longstreet. In Longstreet's mind, the coming invasion, if approved, would be strategically aggressive but tactically defensive. In other words, like the December 1862 Battle of Fredericksburg, maneuver the enemy into a position from which they would have to attack Lee on ground of Lee's choosing. But again, the plan had to be approved. Of those assembled, only Confederate Postmaster General John H. Reagan cast the dissenting vote to Lee's proposal. It was a courageous vote, for who dared to question the man who had saved the Confederate capital, took the war from the gates of Richmond to Washington City, whipped Ambrose E. Burnside at Fredericksburg, and outgeneraled Joseph Hooker at Chancellorsville. And yet, that victory at Chancellorsville had been costly. True, with 16% of his army 
casualties, Hooker retreated. But his Army of the Potomac had inflicted 23% Confederate casualties in victory. And oh, what losses. Staggering numbers at all levels of command, particularly those with combat experience. Countless regimental officers killed or wounded. Eleven at brigade level, one at divisional, and one corps commander. Lieutenant General Thomas Jonathan Jackson. Indeed, some believe that the Confederacy itself died along with Stonewall on May the 10th, only five days before Davis called his meeting to discuss strategy in Richmond. With the death of Jackson, Lee had to reorganize his army. A third corps was created. Division officers like Major Generals Richard Stoddard Ewell and A.P. Hill were now corps commanders. Across the way, the Union Army of the Potomac had its own issues. Despite retreat at Chancellorsville, the morale of the common soldier under Joseph Hooker was good, yet organizationally, there was turmoil. Most of Hooker's corps commanders thought him unfit, and then there were strategic issues. With Lee on the move northward, Hooker wanted Union-held Harper's Ferry abandoned. General-in-Chief Henry Halleck did not. The debate eventually provided the vehicle by which Abraham Lincoln and Halleck relieved Hooker on June the 27th, five days after Ewell's 2nd Confederate Corps had marched into Pennsylvania. To replace Hooker, the president considered Major Generals Darius Couch, John Sedgwick, and Winfield Scott Hancock, but none wanted it. Then the Union Commander-in-Chief sought out native Pennsylvanian Major General John Fulton Reynolds, but the solid officer would accept only if he could be guaranteed there would be no interference from military and civilian elements in Washington City. When informed that was impossible, Reynolds declined. Lincoln now turned to another Pennsylvanian, 47-year-old George Gordon Meade, who Lincoln believed would fight well on his own dunghill. When the Pennsylvanian balked, Lincoln ordered him to take command. Though Meade lacked color, he was as conscientious, energetic, and sharp-minded on the battlefield as he was quick-tempered. So volcanic, he was known as the old snapping turtle. And though hardly known outside his fifth corps, he had something rare in that army, respect from the general officers. Meade, that army's fifth different commanding officer, had seven corps commanders. Not one had led a corps at Antietam ten months earlier. That held true for all but two of his 19 infantry division commanders. Of his 26 generals, only 14 were West Pointers. But this is what he had to work with. And yes, there was an immediate crisis at hand. A Confederate force of some 75,000 men was headed for Harrisburg on the Susquehanna, where supplies and communication could be disrupted to Philadelphia. Baltimore, and Washington City. And yet, the greatest battle 
in the history of the Western Hemisphere did not take place at or near Harrisburg, but at a little town in southern-central Pennsylvania where some 2,400 lived and where ten roads converged, Gettysburg. It began the morning of Wednesday, July 1st, 1863. Although there are several claims as to who fired the first shot, there is a monument some three miles west of Gettysburg, which claims that at 7.30 that morning, the first shot was fired by a member of the 8th Illinois Cavalry. With the Confederates approximately 700 yards away, Private George Sager raised his carbine to fire, but Lieutenant Marcellus E. Jones stopped him. Hold on, George. Give me the honor of opening this ball. Borrowing Corporal Levi S. Schaefer's Sharps carbine and resting it on a fence rail, Jones fired a 52 caliber bullet at a Confederate officer on a white or light gray horse. We believe it may have been Colonel Burkett D. Fry, who would lead men from Alabama and Tennessee down the Chambersburg Pike a little later. Jones shot, which missed, was the first of approximately one million that would be fired over the next three days. Militarily speaking, the battle that day was a meeting engagement. Two groping forces, heavyweights tumbling headlong into one another. The day would belong to which army could marshal more troops to the expanding battlefield. Neither Meade nor Lee were prepared for what was to come, for the bloody level of collision and violence. Around 10.20 that morning, two Confederate brigades from Major General Henry Heath's division advanced, one made up of Alabamians and Tennesseans under Brigadier General James J. Archer, and a mixed brigade of Mississippians and North Carolinians led by Brigadier General Joseph R. Davis. They would be the first of some 25,000 Confederates that would arrive on the battlefield that first Wednesday in July. A veteran of the Mexican War, James Archer's military credentials were solid. Davis, however, was another matter. The nephew of President Jefferson Davis, with no real military training, was finally commissioned a brigadier general, but only after charges of nepotism were freely aired in the Confederate Senate and after his nomination to that rank was once rejected. In truth, he had no business commanding a brigade. Nevertheless, on each side of the Chambersburg Pike, the two Confederate brigades, numbering some 7,600, pushed eastward against Brigadier General John Buford's 2,700 dismounted troopers who fell back slowly, deliberately, buying time from Hare Ridge east to McPherson's Ridge. As they did, the first elements of the Army of the Potomac, the 10,000 men of the First Corps, began to arrive on the field. Just behind them, some eight to 9,000 men of the 11th Corps. In the vanguard was the 1st Brigade, 1st Division, 1st Corps, the famed Iron Brigade, the only all-Western brigade serving in the Eastern-based Army of the Potomac. Their unit, 
instantly recognized when a Confederate shouted, There are those damn black-hatted fellers again. Their distinctive headgear, the 1858 U.S. Army formal dress hat, and their presence squashed rumors that only militia defended Gettysburg. Into the spreading vortex of battle moved the 2nd, 6th, and 7th Wisconsin, the 19th Indiana, and the 24th Michigan. The brigade's commander, 6'7", 250-pound Brigadier General Solomon Meredith, nicknamed Long Saul. A Quaker originally from Guilford County, North Carolina, he had moved to Indianapolis at the age of 19. And leading him into the fray was the First Corps commander, the man who just short of a month earlier refused command of the Army, Major General John Reynolds. Upon reaching the battlefield, Reynolds met Buford in the cupola of the Lutheran Seminary and assessed the situation. The First Corps commander quickly realized that the key to holding McPherson's Ridge was Herbst Woods, a five-acre woodlot adjacent to farm buildings of the family for which the ridge was named. Leaving Buford at the seminary, Reynolds rode to McPherson's Ridge and began to place his troops. Pressed by Archer and Davis's Confederate brigades, Reynolds barked, Forward, men, forward, for God's sake, and drive those fellows out of the woods. In response, the 1,450 men of the Iron Brigade streamed forward. It was just after the 2nd Wisconsin passed in front of him. Reynolds, astride his horse on the crest of the ridge, turned in his saddle to follow the advance of the rest of his brigade. It would be the last thing he would ever do. From, we believe, a Confederate in the 7th Tennessee, a bullet plowed into the back of Reynolds' neck at the base of his skull, dead before he hit the ground. His orderly, Sergeant Charles Vale, later wrote, I have seen many men killed in action, but never saw a ball do its work so instantly as did the ball which struck General Reynolds. Had he accepted Lincoln's invitation for command, he would have been back in Army headquarters south of town, and yet, in command of the 1st Union Corps to reach the field, he became the officer, committed the Army of the Potomac to battle at Gettysburg, and tragically, less than an hour after he arrived on the scene, he was dead. Command of the First Corps fell to Senior Division Commander Major General Abner Doubleday. On this day, like many others, regardless of combatants and century, Many decisions would be made by commissioned and non-commissioned officers, by soldiers engulfed in immediate crises within their fiery universe of battle. One such officer was the commander of the 6th Wisconsin Infantry Regiment, Lieutenant Colonel Rufus Dawes, the grandson of William Dawes, who 88 years earlier rode with Paul Revere to warn of another enemy. Three days short of his 25th birthday, Dawes led his men to a point where Davis's Confederate Brigade was breaking the 147th New York and threatening the Union First Corps' right flank. For most with Davis, 
The route was in the sunken bed of an unfinished railroad that ran west to east and parallel to the Chambersburg Pike. Dawes and the 6th Wisconsin were ordered to plug the gap that Davis's Confederate Brigade had created. Over broken terrain, they had some 175 yards of ground to cover. Knocked from his horse by Confederate fire and with men dropping all about him, Dawes had to get his some 430 men over one post and rail fence, across the pike, over another fence, then hit the Confederate brigade, hopefully before they emerged from the railroad cut. Joining them, the 95th New York and the 14th Brooklyn. Getting over those sturdy rail fences and crossing broken ground while under fire broke up their formation. Yet they surged forward and wedged like blue arrows to the very lip of the railroad cut. It was there they spotted the blood-red and bullet-riddled flag of the second Mississippi. Instinctively, several rushed the banner, held aloft by Corporal William B. Murphy, who had carried those colors since April of 1861. Lieutenant William Remington led the race for the flag until he sank from bullet wounds to his neck and shoulder. Sprinting past the fallen lieutenant, Corporals Cornelius Oakey and Lewis Eggleston began to wrestle with the color bearer. The two grabbed the flagstaff, but because Murphy had driven the splintered staff of his flag so deeply in the ground, the two were unable to seize it. As they tried, they too were cut down, Eggleston mortally. Then it was Private Bodley Jones' turn to make a grab for the bunting of the Confederate battle flag, but he was shot dead. Now into the epicenter of this brawl within a bigger brawl, David Anderson, a private whose massive body and wild shocks of hair prompted his friends to call him Rocky Mountain, he entered the struggle. With a mighty swing of his rifled musket, Anderson smashed the skull of the Confederate who had shot his friend Eggleston. Now, while that was going on, brothers Corporal Francis and Sergeant Samuel Waller of the 6th Wisconsin's Company I made a dash for the prize. Sam knocked aside the muzzle of a Confederate musket, which was aimed at his brother, then felled the Confederate with the butt of his weapon. As that took place, 22-year-old Francis closed on Murphy, and the two fought for possession of the flag. That confrontation indelibly captured by American military artist Don Troiani in his canvas entitled The Fight for the Colors. In desperation, Murphy tried to tear his banner from its staff, but was overpowered by, as he put it, a large, burly man. Again, in Murphy's words, as I tore the flag from the staff, he took hold of me and the colors. With Murphy collared and captured, the sandy-haired and blue-eyed Waller threw the flag of the second Mississippi to the ground and, standing upon it, fired twice more into the Mississippians and North Carolinians packed below in the railroad cut. While the fight for the flag raged, other members of the 6th Wisconsin demanded the surrender of those Confederates down in the cut. Dawes pushed his way to the 2nd Mississippi's commander, Major John Blair, and demanded surrender. And much to Dawes' surprise and relief, Blair, fully aware that he and his men could not escape, calmly handed him his sword. By Dawes' count, 232 of those in the deepest part of the cut threw down their weapons and surrendered. 
Of the 340 of the 6th Wisconsin who confronted Davis's Confederate Brigade, 30 were killed, 116 wounded, and 22 missing for 168 total casualties. For the moment, the Union First Corps' right was stabilized, yet the fight that warm, humid, cloudy day was young. More waves of gray would sweep forward, and more elements of the Iron Brigade would be tested. And with him, a most unexpected recruit who threw in with Long Saul's Iron Brigade. It was a citizen of Gettysburg who wore dark trousers, a blue out-of-fashion swallowtail waistcoat, and atop his gray head, a high black silk hat. When fighting began, he picked up his flintlock musket and powder horn and trotted out into the thick of things. Coming upon a wounded soldier, he asked for his more modern weapon and some cartridges to which the soldier agreed. Now armed with an infield and with cartridges in his pocket, this would-be citizen soldier approached Major Thomas Chamberlain of the 150th Pennsylvania and asked if he might join in. Two months shy of his 70th birthday, the unlikely recruit was John Lawrence Burns. Born in Burlington, New Jersey, and of Scottish descent, his father claimed lineage with poet Robert Burns. This Burns, who wanted to join in, had served in the War of 1812 and volunteered for both the Mexican War and the Civil War. Before the latter, he had been rejected because of his age. Yet, he was allowed to serve as a teamster for the Union Army until he, much to his displeasure, was ordered home. Back in Gettysburg, he was appointed constable, and in that role was himself recently jailed for his over-enthused use of civil authority when he tried to single-handedly resist Jubal Early's Confederate division, which had briefly occupied, then passed through Gettysburg five days earlier. When Early's division moved on, Burns was released and used his freedom to arrest some of Early's stragglers and persisted in encouraging the town to resist until Buford's Federal Cavalry arrived. And now on the 1st of July, and in the middle of a desperate fight, Major Chamberlain sent the volunteer to his regimental commander, Colonel Langhorn Wister, who in turn sent Burns into the woods next to the McPherson farm, where Wister hoped Burns might not only find shade, but safety from Confederate fire. It was there in Herbst Woods along McPherson's Ridge that the War of 1812 veteran joined in with the 7th Wisconsin Infantry, then shifted to join another Iron Brigade regiment, the 24th Michigan which was near the eastern edge of the woods. With the 24th, he served as a sharpshooter, and as one story goes, emptied the saddle of a charging Confederate officer. Burns remained with the regiment throughout the afternoon, but as Confederate numbers increased, he was thrice wounded, and his arm, leg, and several minor ones in his chest. Left behind when the Federal line fell back to Seminary Ridge and fearful of Confederate capture, a wounded and exhausted John Burns got rid of his borrowed rifled musket and buried his remaining cartridges. Indeed, advancing Confederates found him, and to their questions, Burns explained, 
that he was a non-combatant and was on the field trying to find help for his invalid wife. So convincing was his story that Confederate surgeons dressed his wounds. Later that Wednesday evening, under a full moon, Burns crawled to the cellar of the nearest house and later got back to his own home where he received further treatment for his wounds. Citizen soldier Burns fought much of the afternoon on McPherson's Ridge and may very well have been witness to a fight that few would rival the rest of the four-year conflict. With Archer and Davis's reports, there had been a lull. But a little after 2 p.m., Confederate attacks began anew. From out of the Northwest, brigades from Major General Robert E. Rhodes' division of Ewell's Corps advanced from Oak Hill. For Lee, who would arrive on the battlefield between 3 and 4, he was getting the thing he wanted— concentration. More of Ewell's corps came in from out of the north and northeast as well, and adding to the continuing and expanding Confederate pressure, Henry Heath ordered two fresh brigades forward. On the left of the Chambersburg Pike, it was Colonel John M. Brockenbrough's Virginia Brigade, and on the right, the largest brigade in Lee's army, the 2,600 North Carolinians under Brigadier General James Johnston Pettigrew. Pettigrew's alignment, from Confederate left to right, the 26th, the 11th, the 47th, and the 52nd. We now focus on the 840 men of Lee's largest regiment, the 26th North Carolina, and the regiment that awaited it in the leafy shadows a five-acre Herbst Woods. The 496 men at the 24th Michigan, under the command of Colonel Henry Morrow. The 24th was the last unit to join the Iron Brigade. From Wayne County and Detroit, they were formed after an ugly event. Almost a year earlier, July 15, 1862, Detroit civil leaders tried to raise several new regiments with a recruit rally, but a group of disgruntled Detroit laborers, fueled by liquor and angry about the draft, broke up the event. To this humiliating display, the city raised the 24th to cover its embarrassment. No embarrassment this day. For earlier, the 24th and the 19th Indiana had broken Archer's Confederate attack, but now this new Confederate threat of the inevitable collision between the 26th North Carolina and 24th Michigan will simply say this. The encounter would be one of the most savage regimental stand-up fights of the American Civil War. If Morrow commanded the 24th Michigan, the 26th North Carolina was under Colonel Henry King Bergwin, only 21 years of age. He was known as the Boy Colonel the youngest in Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. His second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel John R. Lane, who began that day not feeling well. Overwhelmed with nausea, he felt a little better after a swig of French brandy, which had been offered him by Bergwin, the spirit a gift from his father. As they now prepared to advance, the men of the 26th North Carolina were tense, but prepared 
Though many remembered that their colonel came to Gettysburg uncharacteristically subdued, the men of the regiment drew strength from being around other men who knew the power and reassurance of home. For example, 91 soldiers in Company F were from up in the North Carolina mountains, Caldwell County. In fact, 50 shared the same last name. There were nine coffees aged from 19 to 30. Within, three sets of twins. In Company G, there were four Kirkman brothers from Chatham County down in the Tar Hill Piedmont. Then, there was Sergeant Andrew Wyatt of Company B. Two weeks before Christmas, he deserted and was arrested. Blindfolded before a firing squad and seated by his grave, a last-minute courier raced in to give him a stay of execution. Six paces to the front of the 26th, there was the nine-man color guard led by Company E Sergeant Jefferson B. Mansfield, also of Chatham County. A romantic, when he was on the coast early in the war, he sent seashells to his two young boys. Before them this day, the eastern slope of Hare Ridge, a split-rail worm fence, then a field of oats. On the other side of the field, sleepy Willoughby Run, then a slope to the wooded ridge where the 24th Michigan and 19th Indiana waited. It was about 2.45. The temperature, a humid 76 degrees. The order to advance was given, and the 26th moved forward into the oat field. As they did, a Union volley roared, but most of their shots fell short. The 26th fired, reloaded, and pushed ahead. Then a second Federal volley. This leaden sheet went high. As the regiment approached Willoughby Run, the 26th went into the quick step. As they did, a third Union volley, and this one hit home. Men were chopped down as if wheat. Color bearer Jefferson Mansfield went down with a wound to his foot. 33-year-old Sergeant Hiram Johnson of Company G picked up the fallen colors. At the creek, the 26th found brambles, thorns, and briars, and now a new menace. Union artillery tore into the regiment. Sergeant Johnson fell. Private John Stamper of Company A picked up the unit's colors, but he was quickly dropped with a wound to his shoulder. Now, 30-year-old Private George Washington Kelly of Company D hoisted the colors. In Willoughby Run, he was hit in the ankle and arm, and then strangely he called for a piece of the shrapnel that felled him. Private Larkin A. Thomas of Company F now bore the starry cross. On the eastern side of the creek, Colonel Bergwin stopped and reformed the unit while repeated Union volleys ripped into them. Gaps were now tougher to close. But still, the 26th fired and pressed on. Their presence and fire forced the 19th Indiana and 24th Michigan back somewhat, but though those units gave ground, they still fired volleys, and a federal bullet hit color-bearer Private Thomas in his left arm, and Private John Vinson of Company G now grabbed the colors. He was immediately dropped, and 19-year-old Private John Marley of Company G took them. 
By now, the 19th Indiana had backed almost to the crest of McPherson's Ridge. And with the stubborn 24th Michigan only halfway there, the 26th confronted them. The two regiments pouring deadly lead into one another at only 20 paces. Pettigrew saw all this back on Hare Ridge and sent a message. Captain William W. McQuery delivered it to Bergwin, and it read, Your regiment this day has covered itself with glory. While the courier was present, 19-year-old color bearer Marley was killed, and now McCreary picked up the 26th colors, making reality a dream he had had only days before. For his act, only seconds later, a federal bullet plowed through his heart. 28-year-old Lieutenant George Wilcox of Company H now picked up the banner. He took a few steps and was hit in the right side. Then the 26th boy colonel picked up the battle flag. In his left hand, he hoisted the banner and rallied his weakened center. Dress on the colors! It was then that Private Franklin L. Honeycutt of Company B approached him and from his colonel's hand grabbed the banner. Honeycutt took two steps and was killed instantly. Colonel Bergwin was hit at the same moment, the bullet coursing through the lower part of both lungs. Its force spun him round and knocked him flat on his back. Lieutenant Colonel Lane quickly moved to his fallen comrade, and kneeling beside him and taking his hand, Lane asked, My dear Colonel, are you severely hurt? Unable to speak, Bergwin motioned to his wounded side and nodded his head. With a squeeze of the lieutenant colonel's hand, command of the 26th North Carolina now fell to Lane. With Bergwin's wounding, the center of the 26th attack stalled. Reacting, Lane spotted Company K's commander, Captain James C. McLaughlin, and shouted, I am going to give them the bayonet. The order was passed and gaps were filled. And it was then that Lane spotted their fallen banner. Still lying on the ground, a Lieutenant Curitan moved to pick it up, but arriving first, Lieutenant Milton B. Blair of Company I. As Blair tried to raise the flag, he was stopped by Lane, who said, Blair, give me them colors. And though the Lieutenant gasped, Sir, no man can take these colors and live, Lane answered, It is my time to take them now. Blair handed the 26th colors to Lane, and he, by accounts, became the 14th color bearer that day. Lifting the flag, he looked back at his men and bellowed, 26th, follow me! With head turned back to his men, only 30 yards away, Union Corporal Charles H. McConnell of the 24th Michigan took deliberate aim and fired. The projectile hit Lane just below the base of his skull. Incredibly, it missed his spinal cord and carotid, but smashed his jaw, took a piece of his tongue, passed out through his front teeth, and exited from his mouth. 27-year-old Captain Stephen W. Brewer of Company E now picked up the banner, and with a wild rebel yell, what was left of the 26th rushed forward. Simultaneously, the 47th and 52nd North Carolina struck the exposed flank of the 19th Indiana. With the Hoosiers turned, the 24th Michigan had no support, and they too now had to fall back.
Like the 26th, they too had suffered greatly. Nine color bearers had been cut down. Their Colonel Morrow, the only field officer still standing. With fresh Confederate troops arriving from Major General Dorsey Pender's Confederate Division, the Union line on McPherson's Ridge finally came apart. It was in this new Confederate rush that Morrow was finally hit, grazed by a Confederate bullet that made an ugly, bloody scalp wound. Stunned and separated from his men, he was captured. Both Union regiments, along with the rest of the Union line, were ordered back to Seminary Ridge. At the eastern edge of Herbst Woods, the 26th North Carolina halted. No one was cheering. 628 of their 840 were casualties. Relief from Pender's division, particularly Colonel Abner Perrin's division of South Carolina, finished what Pettigrew's brigade had started. At great cost, they had helped to carry the day. By the end of that Wednesday, Confederates from Lee's 2nd and 3rd Corps had turned both Union flanks and driven Union troops out of town. Indeed, around 5 p.m., the 1st South Carolina raised its flag in the middle of Gettysburg's town square. That unit able to do so because more troops in Butternut and Gray arrived at the scene of battle than did elements of the Army of the Potomac. Attacked by converging Confederate forces from out of the West, Northwest, North, and Northeast, the 1st and 11th Corps fell back to Cemetery Hill, where the senior officer on the field was the one-armed commander of the 11th Corps, Major General Oliver Aldous Howard. Cemetery Hill was to be the rallying point for both corps, and it was to be defended to the last. And with that decision, the high ground, the good ground, would be held by the Army of the Potomac. The collision that July the 1st had been cataclysmic. In one day, Hare, McPherson's, and Seminary Ridges, Oak Hill, and Cemetery Hill added their names to the haunting list of American landmarks. Great strategies had given way to tactics, and in all those isolated pockets of men and units in battle, we must remember that that day, men from both sides and from all ranks were just as we are, human beings, just like us with one great exception. They were caught up in an event that was American history in the making. And because they were participants in the greatest land battle in this country's history, we should complete their stories. First, the man who claimed the first shot, Lieutenant Marcellus Jones of the 8th Illinois Cavalry. He was the sheriff of DuPage County in Illinois when he felt he had to substantiate his claim for another claimed the first shot, a member of the 9th New York Cavalry. Corporal Alphonse Hodges, who stated that his first shot was directed at Confederate soldiers who were not scouts, but regular infantry on the Chambersburg Pike, and fired some two hours before Jones shot. Others dispute Jones and Hodges' claims. The 17th Pennsylvania and 6th New York, who say that they earlier fired at Ewell's scouts, thus opening the battle. All Regardless, victims of understandable human pride, 
But the running debate was enough to prompt Jones and comrades Alex Riddler and Levi Schaefer to come to Gettysburg and in 1886 erect and unveil a five-foot first-shot shaft of limestone, which they had transported some 600 miles from Illinois. Yes, we may never know who actually fired the first shot, but one thing is for certain. As Sheriff Marcellus Jones can attest, if you're attempting to make your mark on history— and you want to add weight to your argument, it doesn't hurt to do it with a five-foot shaft of limestone. Oh, by the way, on the monument, one of some 1,320 managed by the National Park Service, Jones included his rank not while at Gettysburg, but at the end of the war when Lieutenant Jones was a captain. We now complete the tragic story of Major General John Fulton Reynolds. As he fell from his horse, his orderly, Sergeant Vale, rushed to his general. Joined by aide Major William Riddle, Reynolds' collar was loosened and discovered around his neck a silver chain from which hung a Roman Catholic medal. Both thought it odd, as Reynolds was a Protestant. Also found was a gold ring in the form of clasped hands. Inside was inscribed, Dear Kate. The two also noted that his prized West Point ring was not on his finger. Later, when more personals were collected, Vale and Riddle came across several letters signed by a Kate. As far as Reynolds' family and friends knew, the 42-year-old general was a confirmed bachelor. Ever since he entered West Point in 1837, he maintained constant correspondence with his family, particularly with his sisters, but no letter hinted of any romantic interest. Yet, in death, and after 26 years of committed military service, references to this unknown Kate suggested deep devotion. While the battle raged, the general was taken to the home of his sister, Catherine, Mrs. Henry D. Landis, on Spruce Street in Philadelphia. It was there his body was to lie in state until public funeral services would be held July the 4th in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the family's hometown, and only some 56 miles east of Gettysburg. On the morning of July the 3rd, as the battle neared its climax, a young woman came to the house on Philadelphia's Spruce Street, and inquired if a Miss Hewitt might view the remains. Eleanor Reynolds, another sister of the deceased general, heard the question, went to the door, and asked, Kate? Indeed it was, and sisters Eleanor and Harriet invited her in, and greeted her warmly. Kate explained that she had hesitated to come to the Landis home because she knew none of the family, but she had to see John again. During introductions, Catherine, Mary, Hewitt, Kate remained composed, but on seeing Reynolds' body, she broke down and wept. That evening, Kate returned. She wanted to sit by him, and along with Eleanor, the two shared the all-night vigil. If all had gone well, 
They would have married after the war, honeymoon in Europe, but always hanging about their heads, the dark reality of war, the possibility of tragedy. And so the two agreed. In the event of Reynolds' death, Kate would become a nun. And so, eight days after Major General John Reynolds was buried in Lancaster, Kate Hewitt applied for admission to the St. Joseph Central House of the Sisters of Charity in Emmitsburg, Maryland. As another Reynolds sister, Jenny, wrote, The world has no interest for her now. Kate had given him first to God, then to his country, and then to herself. She said, to him, I stand third. Now we return to the struggle for the battle flag at the railroad cut. For his act in capturing the second Mississippi's battle flag, Corporal Francis Asbury Waller received the Medal of Honor. The native Ohioan survived the war and as a first lieutenant returned to his adopted state, Wisconsin, where he became sheriff of Vernon County. In retreat, Wisconsin, he passed on the last day of April 1911 at the age of 70. The man Waller stripped of his flag and captured. Corporal William B. Murphy also survived the war. In the post-war years, he, by letter, communicated frequently with many he fought with and against that fateful day in Gettysburg. One in particular was the commander of the 6th Wisconsin Lieutenant Colonel Rufus Dawes. Murphy lived until 1915, passing on the first day of February, dead at the age of 72. He was buried in Falls County, Texas. The flag he and Waller fought over changed hands several times in the post-war years to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Washington, and then after unsuccessful efforts by President Grover Cleveland in 1887, but successful in 1905 by Theodore Roosevelt, that flag went back to Mississippi. Fast forward 107 years to 2012. When around Thanksgiving of that year, a family traveled to Mississippi's state capital, Jackson, and its Department of Archives to view a battle flag. Standing beside the preserved and encased flag of the second Mississippi, their photograph was made to record the moment and to link generations. Eight months later, standing near the spot where the 6th Wisconsin and 2nd Mississippi battled, and within the very hour of the flag's capture, 150 years earlier, a final tribute. The great-great-granddaughter of William B. Murphy, Allison Hogue, produced the photo of her family and the colors of the second Mississippi that had been taken back in November the previous year. There, they remembered the banner's journey and honored the ancestor who carried it that day. 150 years earlier, the air was filled with the sirens of battle. A century and a half later, the completed pilgrimage of a family reverently standing, sighing on hallowed ground and in my mind's eye, swimming in a moment when time stood still. That moment for them 
history was not black type on a printed white page. It was alive. As to our citizen soldier, John Burns, after the battle, he was made an honorary member of the Iron Brigade. Also, he became a national celebrity. Learning of the aged veteran, Matthew Brady's photographer, Timothy H. O'Sullivan, photographed Burns recuperating at his home on Chambersburg Street and returned to Washington City with Burns' story. In November of 1863, when the president came to Gettysburg to dedicate the Soldiers National Cemetery and to deliver his address, he asked to meet Burns. Together, the two walked from the David Wills home where Lincoln stayed and down Baltimore Street to the last event scheduled for the president's visit, a service at the Presbyterian Church. Burns' fame continued to spread, and a poem about his exploits was published by Bret Hart in 1864. Entitled, John Burns of Gettysburg, its last four lines read, that is the story of old John Burns, and this is the moral the reader learns. In fighting the battle, the question's whether you'll show a hat that's white or a feather. It is written that during the last two years of his life, Burns' mind failed him, and he wandered. On a cold night in December of 1871, it was a destitute John Burns who was found in New York City taken in, cared for, and sent home. Pneumonia claimed his feather in 1872. He was 78. Today, just west of town on Stone Avenue and south of Chambersburg Road, there is a statue of the citizen soldier at the National Military Park in Gettysburg. With the passage of time, his home on Chambersburg Street was razed, and concerned veterans of the battle lobbied that something should be done to commemorate his services. Reacting to a proposal by a Pennsylvania chapter of the Sons of Union Veterans, the state's legislature set aside funds to erect an appropriate monument. The Pennsylvania Board of Commissioners on Gettysburg Monuments opted that the monument be placed on the field where Burns had fought with the 150th Pennsylvania and 7th Wisconsin regiments, and therefore a site was chosen on McPherson's Ridge next to Herbst Woods. Sculptor Albert G. Bureau depicted a defiant Burns with a clenched fist carrying his borrowed rifle. Placed upon a boulder taken from the battlefield, the monument was dedicated on the 40th anniversary of his participation in the battle. Buried in Gettysburg Evergreen Cemetery, his plot is only one of two graves. With permission within to fly the American flag 24 hours a day. The other, the grave of Jenny Wade, the only civilian killed during the battle. Sadly, Burns' original gravestone was vandalized but the local chapter of the Grand Army of the Republic replaced it in 1902. It bears the simple yet appropriate inscription, Patriot. And now, the fate of the 26th North Carolina. It's Colonel Henry King Bergwin, his second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel John Lane in the 24th Michigan. After the boy colonel was shot, he was taken back on a blanket. His last words, the Lord's will be done. 
dead at 21. No one expected the badly wounded Lieutenant Colonel Lane to live. For the 26th North Carolina, in one half hour of combat with the 24th Michigan and 19th Indiana, the 840 men of the 26th were reduced to 212, 75% casualties. Of nine company commanders who went in, six were down. 16 regimental junior officers had been hit. Company E from Chatham County went in with 83, 71 were casualties. Company F, made up of men from Lenore and Caldwell counties, numbered 91 in the attack. Sergeant Robert Hudspeth was the only man uninjured. Of the three sets of twins, five of six were mortally wounded. Of the seven Coffee brothers, only two returned without a wound. Sergeant Andrew Wyatt, the deserter, was killed. The 19th Indiana and 24th Michigan were wrecked as well. The 19th went in with 288, 73, only 73 were without wound, 73% casualties. The 24th Michigan met the attack with 496, 399 were down, 80%. 24 of its 28 regimental officers had been hit. Five color bearers had been killed, and the regiment's entire color guard was either killed or wounded. The commander of the 24th Michigan, Colonel Henry Morrow, was later wounded and captured, but escaped July the 4th in the confusion of Confederate retreat. Within the five regiments that made up the Iron Brigade, several sobering superlatives. Sixty-five percent of the unit were casualties. One of them, its commander, Solomon Meredith, who was grazed by an artillery shell. And after the three-day battle at Gettysburg, the Iron Brigade, as a unit, suffered the greatest proportion of the Army of the Potomac's casualties. As to the entire war, the 79% casualty rate within the 24th Michigan and the 2nd Wisconsin 77% qualify them for the second and third highest casualty rates for all battles fought during the Civil War. Back to the 26th North Carolina's badly wounded John Randolph Lane. Incredibly, he survived his Gettysburg wound and three more wounds to return to Chatham County in the North Carolina Piedmont after the war. There, he became a successful citizen, and even more so, a successful human being. Invited to the 60th anniversary at Gettysburg, he was joined on the stage by a Chicago pharmaceutical executive who shocked Lane and everyone when he said, I thank God I did not kill you. It was Charles H. McConnell, the corporal who had shot him down on the shaded, bloody slopes of Herbst Woods. When a moved lane was invited to take the stand, he spoke of the hallowed ground and, as usual, came back to his comrades at the 26th. He said, Your valor is coming to be regarded as the common heritage of the American nation. It no longer belongs to your state alone. It no longer belongs to the South. It is the high-water mark of what Americans have done and can do. And with that, he broke down and wept. In front of all present and without apology, 
He looked down at the tiny aged remnant of the 26th North Carolina who was present and through tears said, I give you the highest tribute, a comrade's tears. A blue uniform band of Pennsylvania veterans then began to play a spirited rendition of Dixie. The audience, Northerners, Southerners, Americans, all erupted in cheers. For one brief moment, indeed, all gathered that day were covered with glory. And finally, we closed the tumultuous Wednesday that was the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg. Not far from the entrance to Gettysburg Evergreen Cemetery, atop Cemetery Hill, Major General Winfield Scott Hancock and a deflated Major General O.O. Howard stemmed Union retreat. It was around 4.30 in the afternoon, and if there was another Confederate attack, the two realized they had only about 7,000 men to meet it. Yet, thanks to the sacrifices of Buford's cavalry and the 1st and 11th Corps' sacrifice, the Army of the Potomac held the high ground. As to a late afternoon Confederate attack, well, it never came. And that fact would dig at, eat at, every Southerner from that day forward. The actors in the what might have been were Lee, 2nd Corps Commander Ewell, and Major Generals Jubal Early and Isaac R. Trimble. With military momentum and advantage, Lee issued discretionary orders to Ewell. You only need to press those people to gain possession of the heights. Do this if possible. Those last two words, if possible. To drive Federals from Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill, Early's Confederate Division was available. Major General Robert Rhodes, whose men had fought most of the day, was uncertain about cooperating with any new attack, but said he would if 3rd Corps Commander A.P. Hill would assist him. But Hill, ill that day, had already failed to move elements southward to cut off Federal retreat routes. While couriers raced back and forth, Ewell decided Culp's Hill would be his focus, but his lieutenant, Early, believed his men exhausted. Perhaps another of Ewell's divisions, Major General Edward Johnson's, who were now on the field, could go in. All the hesitancy led Lee to believe that no attack on Cemetery Hill or Culp's Hill was forthcoming. So he suggested that Ewell swing right and join the Confederate line which stretched along Seminary Ridge. Ewell, with Early in his ear, thought it best not to do so. So... Ewell did not attack and wouldn't shift. The moment passed, and the burning question, what if, what if Stonewall had been there? Quite honestly, even if Jackson had taken Cemetery Hill, he couldn't have held it without support. As to Culp's Hill, that was clearly Ewell's mistake. He never monitored Johnson and that division's arrival or its progress on the battlefield. And although he did issue orders to Johnson, they never conveyed any sense of urgency. Across the way, George Gordon Meade arrived around midnight. He wanted to attack 
the next day. But his largest corps, the 6th under Major General John Sedgwick, was 35 miles away. And his 12th corps under Major General Henry Slocum wasn't up yet as well. As a result of the fighting of July the 1st, Meade's 1st Corps was wrecked. 5,600 casualties, 62%. His 11th, which broke yet again, had lost some 3,200. For Thursday, July 2nd, Meade would have everybody up, save Sedgwick's 6th Corps. So he opted to dig in and wait to see what his adversary would do. During the evening of the 1st, no attack orders came from Lee. Historian Stephen W. Sears believes Robert E. Lee was angry, frustrated, angry at an absent Jeb Stewart who left him blind, at Henry Heath who stumbled into the fight in the first place, at A.P. Hill and Ewell's indecisiveness, and at Longstreet's stubbornness about a continued fight at Gettysburg and the nature of the invasion in general. All this most unsettling to him. The first time in Robert E. Lee's command that he experienced balking subordinates who fumbled with discretionary orders. Never before had he been doubted. The misunderstanding with Longstreet bore fruit that evening. His second-in-command wanted to move right to the south and get between Washington City and Gettysburg. But as Longstreet put it, Lee's blood was up. Indeed it was. There had been Confederate success that first day. Some 25,000 of his army had made it to the field that day and inflicted some 9,000 Union casualties. Conversely, only about 18,000 of the 95,000-man Army of the Potomac fought that first day, but still inflicted some 7,000 Confederate casualties. Much was still in the balance. Some 16,000 total casualties. And this was only day one of three. There would be many more and just as many stories. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank yet another who has joined the ranks as patron of this Threads from the National Tapestry, Stories from the American Civil War. Up in New York City, thank you so very, very much, Tuck Fisher. Thank you for joining all of us and for your interest. Next time we gather, the second of our three episodes on the Battle of Gettysburg. Again, not so much a blow-by-blow account, but timeless stories from the second day of the greatest battle in the history of the Western Hemisphere. I hope you'll join me as we try to bring color and breathe life to stories from Thursday, July 2nd, 1863. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.